Well, open your Bibles to 2 Samuel. We're going to go to chapter 7 today and uh, pick up where we left off last week. But uh, just want to say once again, it's really great to be here with you. And um, if for some reason the QR code was not on the screen long enough, like for me, it just takes, takes longer to get to my camera. All that information for the school supplies is at the desk here in the hallway. On your way out to the left, you can, there's QR codes there also. Um, really looking forward to that. That was a, a really uh, huge blessing to the uh, community last year. There was a line outside the door and uh, looking forward to bless the community that way again. It was a, a lot of fun. And, and that was, by the way, that was in the rain. That was in weather. And there were people there uh, out there doing that. If you, I don't know if you remember, we set up the tent that day, Pastor, and, and we were, our, our job at, at one point was to sit under the tent and poke the top of the tent to knock the water off the top. I don't know, for like an hour it felt like, so it was probably like 10 minutes. But anyways, um, <laughs> so uh, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and uh, we have, we've seen some really great things happen for David, uh, which is really refreshing after all the things that he's been through. And uh, we saw him, of course, become king, and we saw him take Jerusalem uh, two attempts at bringing the ark to Jerusalem. The first one is, was an epic failure. Someone died because he didn't do it right. He was trying to do the right thing, but he did it the wrong way, which is really, really important. The ark was significant. It had um, it, it symbolized in a, in a way God's presence, but it had the mercy seat on the top of it where God would really meet with people. So there was a great reverence for this, and um, and and he just he did it the wrong way. But finally. Uh, we saw last week that he did it the right way, and there was great rejoicing, if you remember, um, th that he, uh, first of all, he did it with great rejoicing, and we talked about how there should always be a sense of joy just knowing that the Lord is with us, uh, and we see that in David, and talked about, just so you understand, there's, not, uh, there's a difference between happiness and joy. We understand that, right? Happiness really depends on my circumstances. For instance, you know, I normally wouldn't be really happy about all this rain, although we needed it, right? Uh, and to be honest with you, my emotions, my happiness, has far too much dependence on the weather. Like it just, it just does. You all know, and uh, we're dead set in the middle of the year, you all know winter's coming and you're gonna hear me whine about it the whole time. So, so. So uh, my, my happiness, like everyone else's, it's connected to our circumstances. Um, and so it comes and it goes. But joy isn't about circumstances. Joy is about a state of being. And what state of being am I in? It might be 30 degrees below zero and nine foot of snow outside, but God still loves me. God still forgave me. He still went to the cross for me. He still redeemed me. He still gives me purpose. That's my state of being, and that is a source of joy. And David was showing great joy. And then it, it talked about how the whole house of Israel was, was, had great joy. And we talked about we should take joy in doing God's work together, right? When we come together on July 16th and we serve this community with, with backpacks and we serve one another at the cookout, there should be great joy that day because we're doing God's work together, right? And there normally is great joy when we do it, right? 
there's going to be, uh, I know there's going to be a lot of, of meat there. I like meat. So there's going to be joy and happiness. So, um, <laughs> so, uh, but that was the other thing, by the way, David did is he gave away all this food, which blessing others is another form of worship. And we see all this last week. And then the other thing I just want to remind us about that was not so joyful we saw last week was Mikal, his, his first wife's reaction to all this. He, he, he comes home and, and she's like, oh my, what a scene you made. What, what a, a de- deal you've made for yourself and made a fool out of yourself. And it's not, very, it's not a very nice way to come home albeit she had been through a lot and David really was a source of a lot of pain for her and we we could talk about that but the point was David was worshiping and instead of worshiping God who's worth it she was criticizing David and she was the one trapped in bitterness and we fall into that same trap too it just bears repeating before I get into this passage when there's hurt in our life and when perhaps somebody hurt us and and we see them worshiping Jesus Sometimes it's hard for us to see that. The cure for that is not to sulk. The cure for that is to stop looking at that person and start looking at the Lord and worshiping him. That's the cure. You don't let somebody else's sin, somebody else's um, issues get in the way of your connection with Jesus. And if she would have just done that, life would have been totally different for her. And life could be totally different for you and I if we can learn to do that. And it brings us to chapter seven today, which is a, a, a very, uh, a, I heard one person say, one of the most important parts of the Bible. I don't like saying that because that indicates that there's other parts of the Bible that are less important, and I don't believe that either. Um, but it is a pivotal part. It is a foundational part of the Bible because what we see happen here is something that we call the Davidic covenant. And God makes this covenant with David, similar to what he's made with Abraham in the past, but uh, far further spanning uh, and all the way, leading all the way to Jesus with great significance. And so theologians could take this entire service and 12 more weeks just talking about the theological implications of what happened here, what it meant for David, what it meant for his family, what it means for us even, and we'll explore some of that today, but I, I don't want to take all the time just looking at the covenant itself, but the covenant maker. Not, not the promise, but the promiser, the promise maker, because isn't that our ultimate goal really? Isn't necessarily to know all the promises of God, although that's really important, right? But to know God, to know Him, right? We can miss a lot when we just focus on the promises. I kind of think of it in terms like this. Um, you know, if you have a family who, you know, their, their father is maybe kind of on their, his last days and instead of hanging out with him, they're already trying to divide up what the will is. Like, what, what, what are we gonna get, right? And instead of being with the father, right? And so I wanna kind of take the time, we're gonna talk about the covenant, obviously, because it shows us a great deal about the heart that the Father has for us and our, what we can learn about our relationship to Him, how we relate to Him. Um, but really, I want to see something about the Father in here. Amen? Amen. Second Samuel chapter 7, and I'm going to read the whole passage first. Verse 1, we're going to go to 17. When the king had settled into his palace... 
and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, the king said to the prophet Nathan, look, I'm living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. So Nathan told the king, go and do all that's on your mind for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go to my servant David and say, this is what the Lord says. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not dwelt in the house. Instead, I've been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever spoken a word to one of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people asking, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? So now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest on earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done. Ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with the rod, the rod of men and, and blows of mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as, as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed before, from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported all these words and this entire vision to David. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. There's a lot going on there. <laughs> we could spend a lot of time, like I said, on the covenant, but let's just break it down here. In the first two verses, we see King, uh, King David is settled into a house, which we read about being built for him. It was a cedar. It was a really nice house, okay? They've actually, they actually think they found the site where this was uh, just recently. I think it was 2005, fairly recently. Um, the site where this was in Israel. Uh, if you went there, I know we're planning a trip out there. I believe you could stand where it was. But he's in this house, and he's, he says to Nathan, look, I'm living in this really nice house which is great and all, but the Ark of the Covenant, you know, God's presence is in a tent. He, he's, not, he's not okay with that. He wants to fix this. He, want, he sees a need to build a house for God. Not a bad thing to, to think of, right? First of all, I just think it's admirable, to say the least, that here's a king that has finally arrived. What do you do when you finally arrive? Some of you are like, Pastor, I haven't arrived yet, so I don't know. <laughs> I'll let you know when I get there. Well, uh, you know, when you finally accomplish the thing, you finally pay off the house, you finally finish college, you finally whatever. You know, we build ourselves up for these moments, and when they finally happen, what do you do? In Luke chapter 17, we read a, a story about 10 lepers. 
and they all get healed, but only one returns to thank Jesus. So here we have a king, a king who isn't thinking of himself when he finally came into power. How many times in history have we seen, uh, you know, watched leaders rise to office only to show their humanity almost immediately as they get into office, right? And, and I just think it's noteworthy that David's not thinking about his first thought is, I gotta, I gotta make a house for God. I gotta make a place for God. I have a nicer house than he does. Not a bad thing to think, right? In, in Haggai, uh, God, there's a part of God's word where it says, is it a time for yourselves to be living in your paneled houses, your nice houses, while this house, God's house, remains a ruin? So there's a principle in scripture here that God should have a good place. Not for him literally to inhabit, right? The, the scriptures tell us that earth, uh, heaven is his throne room and the earth is his footstool. We can't build a house big enough for God. But it's, it's a place for us to honor and to worship, to, to create a central place of worship, right? But historically to this point, um, God hasn't really, God, God had dwelt with the Israelites in tents and moving about. Literally, the, the tabernacle that they placed the ark in was a portable tent. There's a lot of churches uh, these days, they're, they're called portable churches. They'll set up in a school gym or a school uh, auditorium, and they'll set up uh, you know, classrooms for kids and do the whole thing Sunday morning or Saturday night and then tear it all down. I look at that and I go, more power to you. That is amazing and awesome. It just looks like a ton of work. But it was kind of like that where they would carry it around and then they would set it up wherever they were and God traveled with them when that was happening, right? So now he wants to build a permanent place. What we're gonna find out is God has different plans or what we've already read here. David's heart is definitely in the right place and we see that a lot of times he has a heart after God when we make it our default to humble ourselves and to honor God like he is, we're set up for a very rewarding relationship with God who may not always let us do exactly what we want, but always has more in mind, which is what we see here. In fact, most of the time, what we had in mind is almost nothing like what God had in mind. Has anyone figured that out yet? <laughs> right? So uh, it, it, almost nothing like what he had in mind, but what he had in mind was better. Have you ever got to a place in life where, you know, you've learned what I just said and you look back and you, you thought to yourself, if God had told me or if someone had told me 10 years ago or whenever that this was gonna happen, not only would I not believe it, but it would have overwhelmed me, <laughs> right? So God, God's always got better plans than we do and he has a different and a better plan than David has, right? So either way, when God closes a door on something, it's not a dead end, but a path forward to what he was thinking, which is always better, even if we don't see so at first. And in verse three, Nathan says, so go and do what's on your heart. Go and do what's on your heart. The Lord is with you, go and do that. Now this is the first time we're seeing Nathan. Nathan's a prophet, as it says. Uh, most people think he was trained under Samuel and, and he, I think, is giving what appears to be good advice here. As a prophet, oh, you wanna build a house for God? You should go and do what's on your heart. Anytime someone comes to me and says, I wanna do something for God, I don't know what else to say, but go and do what's in your heart, right? But we have to be careful. 
we have to be careful with that. And Nathan should have been a little bit more careful with that, not to assume that just because something sounds good, it doesn't necessarily mean it should be done. Sometimes we assume God wants something to happen because, well, why not? Or because we see a great need and automatically we assume we're being called to meet that need, right? Yesterday we were at prayer and uh, Pastor Gentry got up and shared and talked about being called by God and how sometimes we have to be able to discern whether we're being, just being called by a need or in fact being called by God and the need. That's an important distinction. In this case, David saw a need and was assuming it was his calling to fill the need, not always the case. And if we're not careful, if we, if we take that, you know, anytime there's a need, it's my job to fill the need. I think that's a great attitude to have, but if you're not careful, you could end up taking the weight of the world on your shoulders and kill yourself. And there's no shortage of need in the world around us. We're surrounded by it. We're surrounded by it right here in this community, in the whole world. I remember years ago, you know, we support, uh, Danya, we've, we've supported missionaries, we support efforts around the world and, and uh, you know, here, projects at different times. And I just remember, I, got, I finally got to a point and I think it was, um, it was a mission to get clean water somewhere. And I finally got to a point where I, I can't do anything else, Lord, like, you know, and, and this is where I realized just because something comes to my attention doesn't necessarily mean God's calling me to do that thing. Now, you have to be careful on the opposite extreme of that too, <laughs> right? You know, you could, you could take that really far and not do anything. Be like, ah, oh, God hasn't called me to do that. So, but you, yeah, what we see here is you gotta be careful not to assume that just because there's a need, God's calling us to meet it. I heard another example like this. Uh, a pastor said, you know, if someone wanted, came up to me and said, pastor, I wanna underwrite your whole ministry. <laughs> I just wanna cover your current expenses and all your future expansion of ministry. It would be really easy for me to say, go and do what's in your heart. <laughs> all right? Just to quote Nathan, you should do what's in your heart. But maybe, you know, maybe pray about it first. Maybe God has a different idea. Maybe there's part of that, but that's, that's not the whole picture. And it's a little surprising, I'll admit, to see a prophet give advice here that God ends up showing us isn't really right advice. I mean, he's a prophet. There's even scripture that says when a false prophecy is given, it could be punishable by death. This, this wasn't an actual prophecy. It was an encouragement. But disappointing nonetheless to see that. And it reminds us, as we get reminded in scripture, that even the best of men are only men at best. Amen? In verse four, that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go to my servant David and say, this is what the Lord says. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not dwelt in a house. Instead, I've been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever spoken a word to one of these tribal Israels who I've commanded to shepherd my people? Have I ever said, why haven't you built me a house? <laughs> Let me get this straight, David. You are gonna make me a house. <laughs> Remember, this is God who says heaven is his throne room and the earth is his footstool. 
better be a big house. And that's kind of the point. You can't build a house big enough for God. And we know, of course, it's not a literal house. It's a place where he's honored and he meets with people. But God's saying, this is not your assignment. In all of my journeys, have I ever asked for someone to give me a house? He's been traveling around in a tent. He hasn't been settled in a house because he has been going with Israel as they go, right? It's, it's like this. He's God, and he can do whatever he wants. But because his people, Israel, have been on the move, he's on the move. And when they're wandering in the wilderness, he's wandering with them in the wilderness. And when they're enduring unsettled conditions, he is with them during that time. When God's people aren't settled, God is not settled. It's a pretty amazing thought, right? It says that from the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I haven't dwelt in a house. Instead, I've been moving around with a tent. It's almost like he's saying, you know, you've been carrying around this tent. You've carried me around in this tent, supposedly, but really it was me carrying you the whole time. Do you see what this means for us? Because all the scripture it reveals the heart of God. And, and so, yes, this is happening for Israel. But it's true in our life also. He is the God who travels through our life, through all the topsy-turvy, here and there journeys and wanderings. When we live in tents, so does he. You know, when they were a pilgrim people on, on the way to the land of promise, he was a pilgrim God sharing the rigors of that journey. He's the God that dwells with you. In all your journey, wherever you are today, he is with you. In all your wanderings, in successes and failures, surprise blessings and disappointments, he is with you. <laughs> Earlier in the Old Testament, one of my, it's a very small passage and it's, it's a, obscure, I think that most people would not say what I'm about to say. It's one of my favorites though. You have Hagar and Ishmael, who uh, Abraham starts just kind of kicked to the curb. I'm, I'm really summarizing it there. But you have this woman and her son with nowhere to go, and God visits her, and she says this. I love this statement. You are the God who sees me. God dwells with his people. He dwells with you. He sees you. He's the God who will not enjoy rest until he gives his people rest. Who stoops down to share in our hardships. Who's not ashamed to say, I've been traveling around in a tent. Do you see how close he comes to you? It really drives, this, this is really driven home in Philippians chapter two, where it says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There is no chasm he wouldn't cross to be with you. in the wilderness, 
in the successes. When you live life for Jesus, no matter what you're carrying in life, he's always with you and he is the one carrying you. In verse eight it says, so now this is what you're to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of army says. I took you from the pasture, the tending, tending the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone and I've destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest on earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from your enemies. He's saying, here's what I've done for you. I took you from the pasture, I chose you. I was with you wherever you went. I gave you my presence. I cut off all your enemies. I gave you my power. And here's what I'm going to do for you. Now, God, in in one way, what he's doing here is he's making a promise, yes. But the point of doing this before David builds a temple, we learn in scripture, one of the reasons why God didn't let David build the temple is because he was a man of bloodshed, yes. But there's something else that God is showing us about who he is. It was common in that time for a people who worshiped a God to receive favor from that God and in return for that, build that God a temple so that they can get future favor from that God. And God was setting himself apart from that mindset saying, no, you're gonna get favor from me. You're gonna get future favor from me, whether or not you build the temple, but then you'll build the temple. And there's a, there's a, a, a great significance in that difference of order. It, it's, the same, it's the same principle of grace that we have. He's saying, I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do no matter what you do. And when you really come to the realization of that, his favor, his future favor, in spite of the fact that you don't deserve it, as Nelson was pointing out earlier, right? Then that inspires real worship. Not to get more favors from God, but out of a heart of gratitude to God. And God sets himself apart from other gods in this way to say, no, you're not gonna have to do that to get me to love you. I love you anyway. I'm not like those other gods, right? And you don't have to do those things to get favor from me. Now, worship is totally appropriate, of, of course, honestly. Like you're like, pastor, I don't even have to come to church. That's not at all what I'm saying. <laughs> By the way, good job being here on 4th of July weekend. I mean, seriously, that's, you know, good job. But it's because of what God has done for us, not because we're trying to do something for God. Do you get the difference there? Because the truth is, we can't worship him enough to earn anything from him. And in fact, if our worship was driven by a desire for him to do something for us, it's really not quite genuine anyway. It's like when, you know, your kid comes up to you and says, I love you, Dad. Okay, what do you want? (laughs) (laughs) My friends are going, can I get 10 bucks? Okay, right? (laughs) But... (laughs) I didn't say I speak from experience, but I do. 
<laughs> I work very hard not to use my family as an example up here. So I'm just saying, I think all parents deal with that anyways. But by God initiating and completing the work, he inspires genuine worship that sets us free to worship him for who he is, not what he can do for us, right? And that means that God's favor for you, his future favor for you, you have those things and they don't depend on what you do for him and that should inspire you. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you, verse 12. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He, will, he is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll discipline him with the rod, with the rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. So David's not gonna build God a house. God's building David a house. God's building David a dynasty. You heard me mention the Davidic covenant. This is the heart and soul of it. Ultimately, this promise is yes, it's about David's kingdom and he's talking about his son Solomon that comes after him. He's, he's the one that's gonna build the temple and he's promising him like, I'm gonna love him and when he does wrong, I'm gonna discipline him and, and I'm never gonna leave him. And that's, that, of course, I mean, I, would lo I love those promises from God about my kids, right? But he goes further than that. He says, your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever. So moving all the way through all of history, even to today, that kingdom exists and is expanding. You say, really? You know, Israel isn't in a great state. He's not talking just about Israel. This, this is leading us to Jesus, right? Because Jesus was a descendant of David. It, it had to be that way. It was part of Bible prophecy. He was a descendant of David. So when God says, I'm gonna establish your throne forever, he's, he's talking about Jesus because there's really no other way to do that but with his perfect son, Jesus, right? I learned this and maybe this is just for you to do some self-study later, but if you follow the genealogy in Matthew and the genealogy in Luke, they're slightly different and most people believe because one is, one is actually Joseph's and one is Mary's, which I thought was interesting because they both led to David. And I thought, well, okay, was that incest or what? Like, what's going on there? But no, you, you, can, you, can, uh, you can read it. It's not, it's not incest, okay? But the point is, he was, his line came all the way from David. Joseph, we know, wasn't his actual earthly father, but Mary delivered him, and he was a seed of David. Amen? And we see through this man who's after God's heart that this covenant that God makes with him that we end up having Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who will be king of kings forever. David re really didn't have any way of conceptualizing the way that God's promise here would play out, right? I mean, we have hindsight 2020, we could see all of this and we could celebrate that, we could talk about Jesus. David didn't really have necessarily uh, any way to know that or the capacity to understand that fully, right? 
The same goes for us in how God works through our lives. Talked about it at the beginning of the message. You know how much, if we look back over the years and we think, if you would have told me then what, what was gonna happen, I would have never believed it. And that's how God's work works in our lives. But not just that, we see here in David's life and all throughout the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament, God's work is generational. It spans generations. That means what God is doing for you, for your family, in, in your life, in your world, is it's beyond your lifetime. What he's promising David is beyond his lifetime. What he promised Abraham is far beyond his lifetime. And sometimes when we receive promises from God or we believe God has something for us, we, we kind of, we confine, we look for it to happen all in our lifetime. Of course, we want it to happen in our lifetime, right? But it doesn't always work out that way. And that's not how God, God's promises work. They span generations. Why? Because he sees so much more than we do. And he'll allow things to happen a certain way right now. And as we serve him, that will affect generations hence in ways we couldn't even imagine. Sometimes you've got to stop and think about how are my choices today to serve God going to affect not just my kids, but my kids' kids and their kids. Because they will have a, a huge effect on those things. And God sees all that. And, and the point is this, and I don't want you to be discouraged and say, well, pastor, you just told me that I might not see God's promises in my lifetime. Well, I don't want you to be discouraged. First of all, if you pass away before those promises happen, you'll be in heaven anyway, so who cares? <laughs> right? Like, you're good. Um, but this teaches us one foundational principle of God's promises that should just spark joy in your heart today. And I learned a new word for this one. At least it was new for me. God's promises are indefectible. Not able to fail or decay. They're indefectible. It endures all casualties and all threats. Death cannot destroy God's promises. Sin does not destroy God's promises. And time does not destroy God's promises. We see that all in this passage. Death didn't destroy it. He says, after you pass away, David, this is gonna continue. Sin couldn't destroy it. He said, verse 14, I'll be his father, he'll be my son, and when he does wrong, I'll discipline him, but I'm never gonna leave him. Time does not destroy God's promises. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever. And for that reason, we are here today because God's promises are indefectible and God's promises to you cannot fail and cannot decay and will last forever. We fool ourselves sometimes into thinking we have a lot more power than we actually have. Right? We think, oh, you know, a lot of, I've met a lot of people that I've blown it. God can't do anything for me anymore. <laughs> I know that's how it feels sometimes, but sometimes you gotta go by what you know, not how you feel. Right. Choices lead, feelings follow. And to, to think that you somehow have in yourself the capacity to do what nothing's been able to do before or ever will, which is negate God's promises. Boy, that's pretty audacious. 
You don't have that kind of power. And if you've ever thought that, if there's one thing you get today, if there's one reason God brought you here today, it's to tell you you're wrong. His promises for you stand. And they're sealed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I want to read this passage again, and I'm going to ask the worship team to join me up front again. Philippians chapter 2. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. This is the seal of our promise who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we know that's not how it ended, right? We know he raised to life again. He's alive today and he's living in us, those of us who've given us, given him our lives. Think about this. We're talking about building a house for God. Well, the New Testament teaches us we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're God's house now. You have Jesus in your life. You're God's house now. Think about that. And you're part of God's house that he's built. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? We're gonna pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you love us and we have your favor. We're always gonna have your favor. And because of that, Lord, we can worship you. You're amazing, God. You're all powerful, God. You have all power over sin, over the sin in my life in our lives. You took it to the cross with you and it died with you. And today we have or have this great opportunity at new life in you. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what you done, have done. And we see it here all the way back in the Old Testament, all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when you're making promises to David that we're living out today. Thank you, Jesus, for that. And just for a minute with your eyes closed, I, I just I want to give you an opportunity to respond today and pray for you while you're at your seat. Is today that's what we're gonna do. But you say, Pastor, I maybe maybe you're that person who, who had convinced yourself that you just screwed it up royally and there was no hope for you anymore. Like it's done. Like you're like, I don't even know why I'm going to church today. Well, now you know why. Because God wanted you to know that's not true. That the enemy of your soul is a liar. And the truth is that his promises stand for you. He loves you. He died for you. He rose to life for you. And the truth should set you free today. You say, Pastor, that's me. I needed to hear that today. Will you pray for me? Amen. Amen. Yeah. Anybody else? I needed to hear that today. You might be saying, I should know better, but I'm telling you, it just is what it is. I feel like that sometimes. Anybody else? Yeah. Receive that word today. God is for you. He's with you. He sees you. 
not because of anything you've done or haven't done, but because of Jesus. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us, share with a friend, and hit subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream your podcasts. Our mission is simple. Come to life, connect to grow, find your purpose, make a difference. Thanks for listening to the Life Church Podcast.